Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Creedal Catholic is a Catholic theology and apologetics podcast that is faithful to the magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. We're a part of the Vernacular Podcast Network, and if you'd like to support us or find out more about the other shows on our network, head to patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Today I'm joined, or I should say rejoined, by Casey Chalk, who last joined us at the end of last year to talk about how Protestantism made him Catholic. Casey, like myself, is a convert from Protestantism. Uh, He came from a a little bit more of a Reformed background than I did, but uh, Protestant nonetheless. Uh, And in some subsequent discussions where we were talking about how he could uh, or should come back on the show to talk a little bit more about uh, some of the ideas that we engage with here, um, Casey suggested that we talk about some common problems in ecumenical dialogue and debate. And I want to talk about that uh, a little bit more. But before all that, Casey, welcome back to Creedal Catholic. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on here again. Yeah, I'm glad that we could do this, and I'm glad that you came up with this idea. I think it's really important. So uh, to our listeners, I just said common problems with ecumenical dialogue and debate. And uh, Casey and I have been involved in apologetics conversations for several years now. Uh, Casey a bit longer than I have since he's been Catholic a bit longer than I have. But, uh, you know, when you engage in conversations with anybody, uh, a fellow Catholic, uh, a Protestant, a uh, non-Christian, an atheist, you'll you'll find these these patterns kind of recurring where you're engaging with someone and then they will employ some sort of logical fallacy. Maybe you'll employ some logical fallacy. Uh, maybe you'll fall victim to one of the things that we, we talk about here, or maybe you'll at least be able to recognize it because you've had people uh, engage you in dialogue uh, in these, these types of ways. So we wanted to, to identify five or six different things that we can avoid when we're in dialogue with our Protestant brothers and sisters or with our atheist friends, even fellow Catholics, uh, and talk about why, why that's important. But Casey, since you pitched this idea originally and, and we're, the, uh, we're the source of it, do you have any opening words to say about why you think this is important? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think this is extremely valuable, um, not just for ecumenical dialogue. I think that these principles can be applied pretty broadly to um, politics, culture, um, basically any place in the public square where we're going to be talking about contentious uh, issues. Um, and I, a lot of this stems from the fact that uh, like, it's very common now to be less interested in having a true dialogue with someone than just trying to defeat our opponents, uh, beat them over the head for why they're wrong, um, which in one sense I understand and I can appreciate that because it feels good to score points against people uh, it feels good to try and make one's interlocutor look foolish or trap them in a gotcha. But um, I think if we reflect, even just for a second, we think about how, how many people are ever going to be persuaded by that approach? How many people are going to change their opinions when we're engaged in a more aggressive gotcha style of debate? I'm going to say very few, if any. Um, so yeah, that's, it's just an invitation to dig in your heels and fight fire with fire. And that's not, that's not good for ecumenical dialogue. It's not good for a democratic society like America. Um, so uh, we need to be better aware of these kinds of problems and stop doing them so that we can have more effective conversations, productive ones, um, and ultimately because we're trying to model the behavior of Christ and the apostles. And that means prioritizing charity and truth over point scoring and self-promotion. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And you know, if you go on uh, if you go on YouTube and you are looking at a debate uh, between two people, what you'll often see is some other relevant videos come up for you. And the topics of the of, the, of those videos, because they're designed to generate clicks, are things like you know, so and so destroys uh, <laughs> you know uh, a listener or whatever. And um, that's that should never be the goal of an argument. The goal of an argument should never be to destroy. Uh, a person. Now, maybe we could say that the ar- the point of an argument is to destroy a bad argument or you know a bad line of argumentation, and I think we can do that. But we we too often conflate the argument with the interlocutor, right? That uh, that defeating an argument is the same thing as defeating a person, and that's obviously not a Christian model of argumentation. And so, um, as we do seek to model the charity of Christ through our engagements and and arguments, we do need to be very careful about how we do that. So with that preface, Casey, let's, let's go ahead and start with the first of these, um, and that is question begging. Now, um, <clears throat> question begging is one of those, those, uh, uh, those logical fallacies that is 
very often misunderstood. And you'll hear people say something like, that begs the question. In other words, they're treating begging the question or question begging as raising the question. So they, you know what, you might hear someone say, for example, what we really need to do is follow Jesus's teaching on the Eucharist. But that begs the question, what were Jesus teachings about the Eucharist? Uh, but that's not a proper employment of begging the question. That raises the question, but begging the question is something different. Um, the Wikipedia example of this, uh, or the Wikipedia definition says that begging the question is an informal fallacy that occurs when an argument's premises assume the truth of a conclusion instead of supporting it. It is a type of circular reasoning, an argument that requires that, that the desired conclusion be true. This often occurs in an indirect way, such that the fallacy's presence is hidden or at least not easily apparent. Casey, do you have a good example of this from your apologetic experience? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, plenty of them. Um, and I, I'm very appreciative for you noting the misapplication of this phrase. I think I don't go a week of my life without hearing someone misapply the idea of begging the question and it drives me crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, I think um, I've been guilty of that uh, many times before, but I have a friend who may actually at some point listen to this episode. So Muriel, if you're out there, hello. But, uh, but she's very She's, she's very, very good at grammar. And one of her, her biggest pet peeves is people misusing begging the question as raising the question. So I, I owe my own understanding of this and its distinction between raising the question to Muriel. So thank you, Muriel. Yeah. And it's, um, it's not just because we want to be anal, anal about our grammar. It's more, I think I, I would argue it's important to understand the difference between begging the question and raising the question, because the people who miss the phrase begging the question typically don't even know what question begging in a philosophical or rhetorical sense even mean. So all the more reason for us to really understand this properly. Okay. So yeah. Um, so here's one example that, uh, that I've seen before. So if you and I are debating the topic of purgatory and I say something like the Bible clearly teaches such thing as purgatory, the word purgatory doesn't even appear in the Bible anywhere. All right, so by me saying that, I'm question begging in reference to actually a couple different things, right? So the first one is the Protestant doctrine of the clarity of Scripture, which we talked about the last time I was on the show, which is this yep. idea that if Scripture is clear on matters of salvation, uh, that any person with ordinary means uh, will be able to interpret its right meaning, right? And the reason why this is question begging is because I'm saying the Bible clearly teaches whatever. Well, Maybe you, if I'm the Protestant and you're the Catholic, you don't subscribe to the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. So by me starting off my argument by presupposing doctrine clarity, I'm question-begging. It's also question-begging because it is presuming the Protestant biblical canon, right? So the Catholic doctrine of purgatory uh, doesn't rely solely on um, the deuterocanonical books, uh, most particularly, as everyone usually raises, Second Maccabees uh, chapter twelve. So it's found in plenty of places. Well, the Catholics would argue that the doctrine of purgatory can be substantiated by other verses, other places in the New Testament, yeah. like Second Second Timothy one, Matthew twelve, Luke sixteen, etc. Um, but there's also a, a premise built in here. If I'm the Protestant saying there's there's no biblical substantiation for purgatory because I'm I'm just presuming a particular version of the Bible which is my own. And then thirdly, uh, I, by saying, the per, well, the word purgatory doesn't appear in the Bible, I'm presuming that actual words have to appear in Scripture for a doctrine to be legitimate. Um, and that is problematic, especially if, even if, I, if I'm a Trinitarian Christian, the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible either. Um, so, just sort of, yeah, an example where you've kind of got multiple levels of question-begging going on. Yeah, well, I think that's a really important uh, example. And this one is the first one we list because it is in many respects the most fundamental. In other words, the idea is, you know, when you are trying to compare to compare your own paradigm to that of someone else's, what you need to do is honestly and critically evaluate that paradigm on its own terms rather than on your terms. So Casey, in the example you just gave, you know, where a Protestant says that's not in the Bible, well, you know, the, the point, it may or may not be in the Bible, but that's not the point, right? And and to assume that it needs to be in the Bible for it to be true assumes a, or, or you know, posits a paradigmatic assumption that is different from the Catholic assumption, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Right, yeah, because in the Catholic tradition, it's not only scripture that serves as a source of uh, infallible authority. We also have holy tradition. So, yeah, 
Exactly. Now you had a good quote that I really appreciated from a friend of yours named Brian Cross. You want to read that for the listeners? Yeah. And I should preface this by saying that basically any, anything I say in this podcast regarding uh, problems in ecumenical dialogue or logical fallacies, I owe to Brian Cross. So any, and anything I say wrong here, it's, it's, not, it's probably my fault, not Brian's, but can I, I love this quote from Brian um, when he's actually talking about uh, his own experience of evaluating uh, the claims of Catholicism when he himself was a Protestant. So he says, if we try to compare two paradigms by presupposing the truth of one of them, we are not authentic, authentically comparing them on their own terms. One cannot rightly adjudicate rationally between two paradigms merely by presupposing the truth of one of them. Doing so is a kind of self-deception because one makes it seem as though one is arguing for a position when in the paradigmatic assumptions underlying one's argument, one is merely assuming the truth of one's paradigm. And we typically engage in these question-begging criticisms of positions in another paradigm because we are not yet seeing the other paradigm, because we are viewing only pieces of it from the point of view of our own paradigm. And that, in turn, is typical because we are not seeing our own paradigm. We are seeing only its material constituents. Yeah, this is really important. Uh, I love the quote. It reminds me of something that my wife, Sally, said when we became Catholic and really when we were sort of on the road to becoming Catholic. And that was that, uh, you know, when you were looking at the Catholic Church and what it taught from a Protestant perspective, so much of it seemed foreign to you. So much of it seemed not grounded in, you know, as in your example, scripture, right? But then then you'd put on what Sally calls the Catholic glasses, and uh, and then everything makes sense. Now, um, you know, someone someone close to us, you know, when we said that we were becoming Catholic, someone close to us um, wrote us a letter and basically just prayed that we would evaluate everything, not through, as we said, Catholic glasses, but through, you know, the truth of Jesus Christ. And the point is not that the glasses somehow, you know, like filter out things for you. Uh, they're not rose-colored lenses that make everything seem better than it is. It's not, I don't mean glasses in that sense, and that's not what Sally meant either. What she meant is that you have to actually evaluate the paradigm on its own terms if you're going to make any conclusions about its veracity, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's actually a very interesting um, kind of counterproposal for someone to say, well, instead of putting on Catholic glasses, you should evaluate it in reference to the truth of Jesus Christ. But then what are the presuppositions built into that, right? It's kind of question begging because presumably when that person says evaluate it just on the terms of Jesus Christ, that could be really loaded in terms of Protestant Bible, clarity of scripture, doctrine, like a Protestant doctrine of justification. Yeah, all, all of those things and more. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. And, and I think it, it was either the truth of Jesus Christ or the truth of scripture. Uh, if it was the latter, then it was basically exactly the example you gave, right? That, you know, that's not in the Bible. So how can you believe that? So it is it is question begging and it's a perfect example of that. So the, the point on this one is to be authentic about the um, the ways in which you evaluate the paradigm and to not beg the question. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of uh, bad things that postmodernism has uh, contributed to uh, modern thinking and discourse, but maybe one good thing is this idea that, uh, that it's very difficult for us to sort of eliminate all of our uh, biases and prejudices and or prejudices and just evaluate something purely objectively without recourse to our own experience or paradigm. Um, and I, I think that uh, that's one thing that uh, postmodernism has sort of <laughs> given, given to modern discourse as a, as a net good. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I remember sitting in my, uh, my graduate school international relations um, classes, learning about critical theory. Uh, and some of that stuff is just awful, right? Because it was it wants to strip everything of its meaning and strip all paradigmatic assumptions away. And at, at, at root, you have to evaluate something from some paradigmatic basis. But the point of what what we're saying, Casey, is obviously not root out or strip away all assumptions, period but just be clear about what assumptions you are working from. And when you're trying to evaluate the truth of a paradigm, work from that paradigm's assumptions rather than your own paradigms, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I'm reminded of the um, the line from Chesterton uh, on this point about how, you know, like the, the point of opening your mind is similar to that of opening your mouth to eat food. That is to close it again on something solid. <laughs> Mm. And so when you're evaluating another paradigm, of course you have to open your mind, right? You can't be closed minded and honestly evaluate. Um, but then once you do evaluate, then you, you need to close your mind again on something solid. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
All right, let's go to our next one, though. Uh, next one is straw man, which uh, is basically, it's another informal fallacy, but it's when you are refuting something that gives the impression that you're refuting your opponent's argument or components of your opponent's argument, but really that you're you're just refuting something that was never, in fact, presented by your opponents at all. So one example of this that I see frequently as a Catholic and especially as a convert is, you know, Catholics who point out things like papal error, right? Uh, this Pope did bad things. How can you believe he's infallible? Um, or priests who are sinning and doing horrible things like committing sexual abuse, right? How can you think this person is uh, and is holy? Look at the terrible things that he did. Um, but, you know, this is an example of straw man because we don't claim that the Pope is personally infallible. There's nothing that makes the Pope uh, incapable of sin or any other cleric for that matter. I mean, the the doctrine of, of the dogma of papal infallibility is very, uh, very clearly delineated and very narrowly circumscribed to uh, to mean a very specific thing. And that thing is not the same thing as the pope being personally infallible. So, yes, the pope can do bad things. You know, yes, popes in the past have done horrible things. None of that has any bearing on the specific dogma of papal infallibility that, that we believe and declare. So that's an example of straw man that I've seen. Do you have any, Casey? Yeah, that's yeah, that's I think that's a great example. Um, and even if people can understand that the Pope is um, that the Catholics don't believe that the Pope is without sin, they may still think that anything that comes out of the Pope's mouth is uh, doctrinal. Yeah, that's a good and, point. Uh, like, it like falls a, within this category. An extreme ultramontanism. Right. Um, yeah. So, okay. Another example of this. Uh, a, so a Protestant once argued to me that uh, length of endurance is not correlative with validity. Judaism, Buddhism, and Hinduism have been around long before Catholicism. So uh, the strong man uh, argument that's going on here is, is thinking that the Catholic Church's claim to its like authenticity uh, has to do with the fact that it's just been around longer than any other church. But that's not what the Catholic Church teaches. It's not just about the fact that we've uh, been around since the beginning. It's that she's the inheritor of apostolic, the apostolic deposit of faith. And as an extension of that, she bears the authority of Christ himself. So it certainly, it helps. It's, sort of, it's part of the, um, the claim that the church can trace its way all the way back to the beginning, but it's not simply because she's the oldest. Yeah, that's another good example. Um, and it's, it is kind of funny when people think that you become Catholic because it's the oldest or because of tradition. I had a friend um, the other day who asked me, Something like, um, you know, oh, so are you Catholic because it's just the, you know, the tradition that you uh, agree with and you just think that it's important for, you know, all of us to be unified. And I said, um, no, actually, the reason I'm Catholic is because I believe that what the church teaches is true. (laughs) So, yeah, it has nothing to do with with length that it's been around. Um, You know, this it does get a little bit complicated, right, because like I mentioned, clerical sexual abuse. Right. And I think that, you know, if you're going to honestly evaluate a clerical sexual sexual abuse. Although we don't claim that clerics are sinless, one would expect Christ's church to have good clerics, right? And so if all of our clerics were sexual abusers, that would probably say something about the truth of our claims. It would at least, you know, it, it would at least weigh on them to some to some degree or in some way. But that's not the same thing as saying that, you know, what the church teaches can't be true because this pope did something bad or because these priests did something bad, right? Yeah, that's right. In some senses, the the actions of the church, they can undermine um, our witness in the world, but they don't nullify it. Right, exactly. Any other examples you you can think of of straw man? Sure. So another one, uh, Protestants often accuse uh, Catholics of worshiping Mary, um, which uh, in in one sense, it's a straw man because we don't we don't worship Mary as I don't know, like the fourth member of the Trinity right. or something, something like that. Uh, of course there is, there's a little bit more, um, Nuance complexity. To that answer. Yeah, there's exactly that, uh, to the Catholic understanding of Mary. We do offer her a form of worship, but it's not the same kind of worship that we give to Christ or to the Trinity. Uh, and this is, yeah, the distinction that you brought up actually in the last pod- podcast too, right. Regarding, the difference between dulia, hyperdulia, and latria, right? So dulia is a form of, you can call it worship uh, or honor that we give uh, to the saints who are holy, lived venerable lives, who are worthy of uh, being, they're, they're, they're models for our behavior. Hyperdulia 
is basically the, the saint above all saints, Mary, um, because she deserves even more uh, devotion and honor than, uh, than other saints. But it's, it's Latria alone. It's, it's, a, it's an exclusive kind of worship that is given to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's a good example because even though it is true that in a technical sense, we worship Mary and the saints, as you just said, uh, in a further technical sense, those types of worship are very different. And you know what we call worship of the saints and of Mary, especially with hyperdulia, would probably be best thought of as honor, like you said, I think, um, rather than worship. So it is a straw man, even even though it's true that we, in true in some sense, that we worship Mary and the saints. It's a straw man when a Protestant says it, because what they're saying is very different from what we mean by it, right? Um, and so it's it's important, you know, in these apologetic arguments to not let your opponent get away with a straw man, not let them sort of set up a straw man just to just to bat it down, but to to exercise clarity of speech and thought in communicating these ideas so that you can convey to your interlocutor what exactly we mean by dulia, hyperdulia, and latria, and how those are all distinctive, and how hyperdulia and dulia in no way diminish, but actually magnify the latria that is due to God alone. Amen. All right, so how about the third one, Casey? What do we have here? Sure, okay. Uh, so psychologizing, which is, this is where one person starts making judgments about the psychological reasons for why another person believes the things that he or she does. So um, psychologizing, unlike the, the first two that we talked about, is not technically a logical fallacy, but it's an unhelpful way of engaging in dialogue uh, because it's presumptive, um, and because the person's engaging, uh, the person engaging in it is normally not qualified to do so anyway, right? It's like very, very few of us who are engaged in, in dialogue, whether it's ecumenical and religious or political or cultural, we're not psychologists. We're not in a very good position to evaluate people's, uh, motives. Yeah. And even further, I mean, even a qualified psychologist is normally not qualified to talk about an individual's motives because they're not that individual's therapist. Right. So, right. Exactly. so there's an even smaller pool of people that's genuinely qualified to talk about, you know, my psychological motives or yours for becoming Catholic. Right. Right. So often when Protestants convert to Catholicism, other Protestants will speculate as to the reasons why uh, that person converted. Uh, so I experienced a lot of this when I would talk to, um, friends of mine from my old Presbyterian church, they would be speculating or I I hear about it through the grapevine. Right. So they, oftentimes you'll hear something like, Oh, they converted to Catholicism because they like the smells and bells, the, the traditions, the the incense, uh, of, of the, of the Catholic tradition. Um, or they'll say something like, well, they didn't like how Protestantism has, um, more intellectual ambiguity than, than the Catholicism. They want to have that, like tightly packaged Thomistic faith that has everything wrapped with a, you know, a bow wrapped around it. Well, or they'll I, say I, some, I do love a good Thomistic faith, Casey. <laughs> <laughs> um, or they'll say something that they just want, you know, they, they're, they're tired of having to figure this all out on their own. They just want someone else to tell them what to believe because it's too hard to be an individual Christian reading the Bible and making uh, determinations about doctrine and faith. Well, I'm sure um, that's what you did when you became Catholic. You just surrendered your intellect and decided to never think for yourself again. Right, Casey? That that is correct. <laughs> I hope the Pope is uh, listening right now and make sure he hears me uh, being a faithful Catholic. Um, right. um, or you know, or alternatively, they might just say, "Oh, you did it for a romantic relationship." Actually, that was <laughs> that was when I, I think that's maybe the most common one. Um, in the in oh, a year sure. or two after, yeah, I, absolutely, a year or two after I converted because I was single. Um, you know, and I would meet people and say, "Oh, yeah, I converted Catholicism," and they'd say, "Who was the girl?" <laughs> oh, wow. That's, that's, that's pretty offensive. I mean, I get, I haven't had it quite that bluntly, but frequently when I tell people that I was raised Protestant and became Catholic four years ago, they'll say, oh, was your wife Catholic? And I'll say, well, she is now, but she converted with me. Right. And then they'll say like, oh, wow, that's normally it's the other way. And then I follow up with, well, you know, it is true that a a lot of people grow up Catholic and now go to a Protestant church, but show me a, show me a well-formed Catholic who becomes Protestant. uh, Cause I, I think I have yet to meet one. Yeah, well formed. I certainly know plenty um, from actually there were a lot of my old Presbyterian church who had grown up Catholic. I don't know if I could speak to their catechesis. Yeah. Certainly when I debated them when I was leaving, it was obvious that there were a lot of things about the Catholic faith they didn't understand well. Right, exactly. That's been my experience yeah. as well. But on your point about Protestant psychologizing, I, I have a really good example of this from last year. Uh, as we discussed on this podcast before, when you were responding to uh, Ansi Kamel's piece in First Things, Ansi is a uh, is, I guess, the editor of the 
Ad Fontes, which is the journal of the Davenant Institute. We talked a little bit about Davenant. Um, and yeah. they had a blog post series last year that was about why Protestants convert to Catholicism. And one of those posts was um, subtitled uh, in, in pretty nakedly psychologizing fashion, The Psychology of Conversion. And uh, in it, author Brad Littlejohn outlined three reasons why he said Protestants convert. And one is authority hunger. Namely, it's similar to what you said. You know, I'm tired of figuring out things for myself. I just want someone to be able to to draw the line for me. Uh, two is holiness deficit disorder, which is akin to what you were saying about smells and bells, right? I just want to, I just want to go to church on Sundays and feel like I'm, feel like I'm somewhere else and, and sort of be transported to, to heaven or whatever. Um, you know, have something about the holiness, which is, which feels more real. Ironically there, I mean, um, you know, the, the, the Catholic church writ large has a pretty big holiness deficit disorder in, in its, <laughs> in it's like regular Sunday daily parish masses. Right. So, yeah, you know, if you want if you want to uh, have, you know, good liturgy and music, you're probably going to be better off going to like a, an Anglican church or something, but um, that's a separate yeah, conversation or, or yeah, yeah for, certainly there. Um, and then the third one was the inner ring, which is, you know, being like being kind of a part of this, this inner club of decision makers and, uh, and lovers of power and all of this. So those, those three things are, are pretty offensive, uh, you know, caricatures of why someone would become Catholic. You'll notice though, that none of those three reasons involves anything to do with truth. Right. So, right. Um, they're, they're all about this sort of, uh, what we might call sort of a mild psychosis, a mild psychological illness. I need to be, I need to be loved. I need to feel holy. I need to be directed. I need to be included. Right. That's what he's getting at there in, in none of those is the consideration. Oh, is it true? Right. Because I if, wonder if, if it's oh, true, yeah. that's what matters. That's the only thing that matters. Right. Well, it's, I wonder if little John, actually thinks anybody converts to Catholicism out of a pursuit of truth. Um, yeah, you'd, I almost, I wonder if he's ever really listened or read uh, conversion stories to Catholicism. Um, Cause either, either he's in basically sort of like neg- rejected whatever that people are claiming on, on the face of it. Um, or <laughs> yeah, well, he's just doing a terrible, yeah, terrible, terrible disservice uh, misinterpretation of, uh, of their reasons. Yeah, yeah, it is unfortunate. I don't mean to um to, you know, cast too many aspersions at Mr. Little John. I mean, he's he's written publicly, so I'm not uh, I'm not saying anything that or to commenting on anything that he hasn't put out in the public sphere already, but I do think it's a good example of what what you're bringing up, Casey, that um there are many examples out there of psychologizing just uh, uh, assigning um motives that you can't possibly know or understand to someone else's decision. And the problem is that when you do that, you end up actually neglecting the central question, and the central question, as as we were just saying, is is it true, right? So it's much easier to look at to, to look at someone who um, who becomes Catholic and just say, oh, these are all the reasons they did it, right? They they have this problem in their personal life, so they wanted you know some order, um, you know some sort of some structure to their life, etc. They are a big reader and they love Thomas Aquinas, so they just want to be in his tradition, etc. You can you can assign all these things as much as you want if that makes you feel better but it's not going to help you evaluate the question of whether or not it is true. And that's the important thing that you need to solve. If it's not true, it doesn't matter. If it's true, that's where you need to be. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think we should, uh, it's, I'm glad that you talked about at the beginning, how we as Catholics can be just as guilty of this. So I, I'd like to give one example for how, uh, since I've become a Catholic, I've heard a lot of Catholics psychologize in regards to Protestants. Cause a lot of my Catholic friends will say things like, gosh, how are, how do all these Protestants still, you know, why are they Protestants still when like, there's just so much evidence for the Catholic faith, there must be something going on here. And something I often hear will be something like, well, they like the, uh, the emotional and spiritual assurance that they receive from Luther's doctrine of justification and Calvin's doctrine of election, because, you know, it gives all of this uh, source of comfort and assurance that they're going to be going to heaven, not because they actually believe it's true. Um, and that's a, uh, yeah, I mean that's just as good of an example of psychologizing as uh, Protestants doing it towards Catholics. Yeah, that's a great point. I heard a a um, relatively prominent priest on a podcast um, basically say that you know he basically lumped all Protestants together in the prosperity gospel boat, and I was just like, I mean that's that's not that's straw manning itself, right? I mean um, it's it's doing a bunch of different things, uh, but it's a straw man because most maybe not most I don't know what the stats are, but there are you know, millions of Christians who are not prosperity gospel Christians and uh, to lump them in with 
with those people is to, you know, to not evaluate their paradigm, but someone else's. Um, and then it's psychologizing too, because you're just saying like, oh, they just want that because they think that if they follow Jesus, their life will be easy. Well, that's, that's not in my experience. I don't know about yours, Casey. I'm guessing it's the same since you come from a Presbyterian background, but in my experience, that is not what the majority of Christians believe. There are definitely the Joel Osteen types and some mega churches out there, but there are also a lot of very uh, biblically minded, serious Christians who have serious arguments for what they believe, even if, even if they're wrong. And those arguments are not prosperity gospel um, arguments. Yeah. I mean, yeah, at least certainly in the PCA and my particular PCA church in Virginia, um, they det- they detested Joel Osteen and a lot of the other prosperity gospels. It was something that was frequently um, preached against from the pulpit. And I would say that, yeah, they had at least from my own experience within the Reformed tradition, they have a pretty robust understanding of uh, the need for well, the, the reality of suffering oh, in absolutely. Christian life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's go to the fourth one here. And that is bulverism. And this is, this is from you. So I'll let you, I'll let you take the driver's seat for this. Sure. So um, yeah, bulverism in some ways is kind of an extension of psychologizing. Um, So it's to assume that your opponent is wrong and explain his error. Uh, So uh, one great quote from this is, uh, well, basically where the term bulverism originates is from C.S. Lewis's God on the dock. So here's the quotation. Uh, You must show that a man is wrong before you start explaining why he is wrong. The modern method is to assume without discussion that he is wrong and then distract his attention from this, the only real issue, by busily explaining how he became so silly. In the course of the last 15 years, I have found this vice so common that I have had to invent a name for it. I call it bulverism. Someday I'm going to write the biography of its imaginary inventor, Ezekiel Bulver, whose destiny was, to de- was determined at the age of five when he heard his mother say to his father, who had been maintaining that two sides of a triangle were together greater than a third, oh, you say that because you are a man. At that moment, E. Bulver assures us, there flashed across my opening mind the great truth that refutation is no necessary part of argument. Assume that your opponent is wrong, and explain his error, and the world will be at your feet. Attempt to prove that he is wrong, or worse still, try to find out whether he is wrong or right, and the national dynamism of our age will thrust you to the wall. That is how Bulver became one of the makers of the 20th century. There's always so much to digest in a lengthy quote from a man like Lewis. Uh, I absolutely love this one, especially the part where uh, Bulver says the great truth that refutation is no necessary part of argument. <laughs> you don't actually, you don't actually need to refute. All you need to do is assume your opponent is wrong and then just explain why, even if your explanation is logically inconsistent or incoherent, it doesn't matter. Uh, right. And so th- this is uh, this is a good one. I love it. Yeah. So any examples of this in uh, ecumenical dialogue? Sure. Yeah. So um, if one person says to another, well, you only believe that because of, you know, fill in the blank. This is what your parents believed, uh, which is also also the genetic fallacy. Or you want to please your Catholic grandmother before she dies. Um, uh, oh, or uh, so you already converted Catholicism. So you believe everything it teaches without thinking for yourself. Um, yeah, there's any number of things that could go in there. Yeah. And I think, again, I mean, bulverism is not, I, I think it's, I think if you look it up, it'll be technically classified as a logical fallacy, but it's really kind of a, a, a grouping of other logical fallacies, or it can at least be partnered with all of those. Like you said, you know, the genetic fallacy, uh, straw man for sure. But, but all it is, is, is a, you know, a, a naked assertion, a supported or not really supported a naked assertion followed by unsupporting evidence, I guess would be the, the way I would kind of describe it. Right. So, uh, how, you know, responding to an argument by not really responding to it, by just declaring that it's wrong and then um, positing a, another fallacy as your argument, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And this this one is, I've witnessed it very frequently, not just in religious dialogue, but especially in political dialogue, because if someone makes an argument, but they happen to, um, you know, work for a company that is involved in that kind of work or they receive money from another company or, you know, from an organization to make that. And then um, they're making an argument that's going to kind of serve the purposes of that company or organization where people say, well, you're only making that argument because, you know, you, you stand to benefit from it. Well, they may, yeah, it's very possible that they may stand to benefit from it, but you still have to evaluate the argument itself. Right. doesn't make it not true. Right. Right. I, I think it's important to remember that too. It, it doesn't, you know, whatever assertion you make based on whether or not you think your opponent is wrong, it still has to directly 
refute your opponent's argument. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay, let's go to our second to last one. And this one is um, uh, imputing malign motives or ignorance to the other person. So saying it's not just that you're wrong in your argument, but that you know you are wrong and that you believe it anyway because of some evil motive, right? Right, yeah. So I saw an example of this recently um, in one of the articles I wrote at Crisis Magazine. So this person who's actually a Catholic, he accused me of being dishonest rather than just saying that he disagreed with me. Um, so, right, rather, instead of just engaging my argument, he says there's, there's a dishonesty that's involved here. And I, I think a lot of this stems from the fact that there's a, there's a posture of combativeness in regards to ecumenical debate and even just debate in general right now in America, right? Um, but uh, true ecumenical dialogue requires us to demonstrate through empathy to be able to get into another person's paradigm, like we talked about already, and try to consider it objectively um, rather than accusing people of dishonesty. Right. Now, I do think that there are some ways in which, I mean, I think like nakedly accusing someone of dishonesty in an argument is a bad thing to do and falls into this trap of in, in, uh, imputing malign motives. Um, but there is a point at which I think sometimes you can point out the logical contradictions within someone's argument and then point out that, you know, to, to hold to that argument is an intellectually dishonest thing to do, but that's a different thing entirely uh, from, you know, calling that person dishonest, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it, it certainly does. Um, and yeah, as an aside, uh, this is something that I've thought about a lot as a former Protestant, N- not that this impugning of malign motives uh, it didn't start with Luther and the Reformation, but Luther was very um, effective and prolific at employing it towards his enemies. So he would call them things like, "Oh, the reason why you're the reason why you believe this is because you're stupid. Uh, like you know, you're not smart enough to to understand the truth of Scripture, or you're purposely lying, or you're deceived by the devil." Um, and I think that that has filtered its way. Um, into a lot of Protestant rhetoric, especially when it comes to debating the meaning of Scripture's uh, supposedly clear meaning, um, which in a way, if you think about it, it makes sense, right? Because if Scripture's clear and you have a different interpretation of it than I do, then you must be stupid or sinful or deceived by the devil. Um, Otherwise, you would believe what I believe and you'd see what I see in the Bible. Right. Yeah, exactly. Now, I do think that, you know, saying that someone's deceived by the devil not necessarily is not necessarily the same as impugning malign motives to them, but it is, it's still, it's still dicey territory for a couple of reasons. One, I think because it can just, um, imply, uh, ignorance on the, on the part of your interlocutor, but second, and more importantly, it's a way of kind of passing the buck and sparing you the hard work of actually refuting that argument, right? So if someone disagrees with you and you just say, oh, well, you're just deceived by the devil. Well, that's a pretty, it's an easy thing to say, but it's also a convenient thing that you can do to just sort of avoid having to engage. So the better thing to do, it's it's very possible that your interlocutor is deceived by the devil. Uh, I'm not saying don't believe that, but saying that, you know, putting words to that um, rather than engaging their argument is not a good practice because it will allow you to just bypass the argument without actually being able to evaluate on its own terms, on its own terms for truth or falsehood. Yeah, and all the times that I've ever been accused um, of being deceived by the devil, which thankfully has never happened face to face, it's always been um, in internet com comments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a it's a um, dark dark place. It is, it is. Um, but it's interesting to, to think about, um, or it's curious that the people that so quickly lodged that accusation, they never think maybe they could be the one to see by the devil. Right. And I think that's, that's the particular problem in making such, um, an, an aggressive attack is that, uh, the, the person making it could very well be committing the same offense. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and on those lines, I mean, I've heard a lot of Catholics, you, you talked about this a little bit already with, you know, when Catholics, look at um, you know, Protestants and say, how can they not believe this? There must be something going on there. Well, I noticed this happens with Catholics evaluating Protestant beliefs a lot as well. There, you know, and you're, you're as, as aware as I am that there are serious Protestant objections to the Catholic Church. And when I say that, I'm not saying that they're true objections. I'm just saying that they're serious, right? In other words, they're not frivolous. There are non-frivolous Protestant objections. But I think a lot of times, um, Catholics look at the Protestant church and thinks that there are no serious Protestant objections, that all of the objections are frivolous. 
And so then what they do implicitly or explicitly is basically just assume that, you know, Protestants are all intellectually deficient because if they weren't, then they wouldn't adhere to these, you know, supposedly frivolous objections. Um, you know, an example of this is you'll see like Catholic apologists or, or um, even untrained people just say like, how can you read John six and not be Catholic? That's inconceivable to me. You know, how could you possibly read James two twenty four and, and still believe in sola fide? That's inconceivable to me. Um, and so again, the implication, right? If you're Protestant, you're not smart or you're at least intellectually dishonest, whatever the case is. And, and it just overlooks the fact that there, there are non frivolous objections. Now, again, those objections are not true. If I thought so, I wouldn't be Catholic. Um, but we still need to, we still need to engage with those objections on their own terms in order to, um, to evaluate their truth or falsehood and to communicate the truth of what we believe. Agreed. And I think it's also deliciously ironic for a Catholic to say, um, to, to call a Protestant out for, um, not understanding the Bible's clear meaning on something. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> Since, uh, you know, as we talked about with the with the doctrine of uh, clarity. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, <laughs> all right, the sixth thing I wanted to talk about, Casey, uh, and this is this is mostly me. I'd be I'd welcome your comments if you have any. But what I want to do is kind of point the finger at myself a little bit here and talk about the sixth principle uh, to avoid, which is uh, over overzealousness. And this is something I've thought a lot about since my conversion. By overzealous. I don't mean to imply that there's some sort of upper limit, upper limit on how passionate we should be about defending the gospel. I mean, we should be full of zeal with respect to Jesus Christ and his church and the gospel. But I think that, that, you know, how we communicate that zeal matters, right? There is a tendency on the part of many Catholics, especially converts, And I speak for myself, having struggled with this in the past and, and still sometimes I think uh, there's a tendency to arrive on this side of things on this side of the Tiber and have kind of a triumphant attitude about the whole thing, right? That I, I was once Catholic. How could I have done that? I look at that and just wonder how I could have ever been Catholic and, or how I could have ever been Protestant, right? And now I'm Catholic. And so then, you, you know, you get on that side of the river and you're like, now it's my mission to, you know, go back and, and pull across as many people as I can, um, kicking and screaming if they're, if they're, if that's necessary. Um, so I, I mean, I want to caveat this this appropriately. And I think you know what I'm trying to say, Casey. So if I'm not if I'm not coming across the way that I should, please uh, please correct me here. I don't want to suggest that we don't have a missionary mandate. I don't want to suggest that the Great Commission doesn't send us out to go and make disciples of all nations. I don't want to suggest that we don't have an obligation to talk to our Protestant brothers and sisters about the truth of the Catholic Church. All of those things are absolutely true. What I'm trying to say is that every single element of our mission must be governed by love, the greatest of the theological virtues. Um, and I think St. Paul in 1 Corinthians um, 13 is really strong on this. Let me, let me read to you verses one through eight. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So what, what I'm saying there is that we have to make every effort to subordinate our missionary zeal to charity. That doesn't mean to make it of secondary importance, um, but it means to, uh, in, in, in sort of the order of... of, of uh, existence in the ontology love must be preeminent in our lives as christians and so everything has to be in service to that love and that love that charity requires that we engage the best form of our opponent's argument rather than a straw man it requires that we evaluate our opponent's paradigm on its own terms like we said no question begging uh it requires that we don't pretend to know their mind better than they do that's psychologizing uh it it demands that we assume pure motives on their part um uh, rather than, you know, malign motives. Um, and so all of this is what I'm trying to say. And, um, when I was thinking about this, this podcast as well, uh, Paul's words in Ephesians four came to mind where he's talking about the unity of the church, um, and how, um, the church gave, you know, and God gave us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers all throughout the church so that we can quote, attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the son of God. Um, and at the, the end of this chapter, Paul says, 
Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So in this way, what we need to do, subordinate, again, subordinate our missionary zeal to love, because everything we do has to be about speaking the truth in love. It has to be governed by love. And you know, to engage in any of these logical fallacies that we've talked about is to to not do that. Um, one thing that I think we talked about briefly last time you were on the podcast, Casey, was these two competing visions of ecumenism, right? One vision of ecumenism yes. says, you know, being ecumenical is about papering over our differences so that we can all get along. Um, that is the view that some hold. Uh, you and I are not not two of them. Uh, the other competing vision of ecumenism says, no, ecumenism is really about being clear on where our differences are and recognizing that love and truth cannot or at least should not be separated um and, and this reminds me of benedict the 16th in uh, caritas and veritate um love and truth which is actually the next uh the next one we have on the lineup for encyclicalpedia on this podcast but benedict writes quote love that is caritas is an extraordinary force which leads people f- to opt for courageous and generous engagement in the field of justice and peace it is a force that has its origin in god who is eternal love and absolute truth end quote so the takeaway from there is that tr- this true ecumenism right this being clear um, about the inseparability of truth and love and being clear about where our differences are so that we can better love each other. That true ecumenism is the only one that will lead to unity. And it has to be guided by truth in love because the truth without love is a clanging symbol, like St. Paul says, and love without truth isn't love at all because love can't exist without truth. Yeah, I think all of that is very well said. Um, you're the, um, talking about zealousness. I can definitely relate to that. I can think of well, one, one anecdote, um, which, uh, I remember, <laughs> so I, I was a very, uh, avid subscriber to modern reformation magazine, which you may have heard of, uh, uh, a great, you know, magazine, if you're a reformed, uh, you know, Presbyterian Christian, um, articles by a lot of the best minds in the reformed faith. And I remember, um, when, uh, uh, I got a call, you know, asking if I was going to renew my subscription and I, and I said, <laughs> no, I've converted to Catholicism and I want you to tell the editors that they all need to convert as well. And these are my reasons, et cetera. And, uh, <laughs> getting off the so phone that, and thinking, that okay. is some, that is some true zeal right there. Yeah, that's right. It was like a little cathartic, probably not very effective, especially for the poor woman that was just trying to see if I was going to renew my uh, magazine subscription. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, and I, and I've, I've been on the receiving end of plenty of this as well, since I've, um, become Catholic. I can, I, we, me and some of the other guys at called to communion where I, I've done a lot of writing in the past. We joke, uh, this is, it's almost like God's getting back at me for, um, a bad romantic relationship I had with a reformed Baptist. Cause I've engaged with so many reformed Baptists, um, on the internet where they just throw lots of Bible verses at me. And they, it's almost like they think the Bible is some sort of magic book where if you just quote it enough at people you disagree with, and, and zealously enough, then It'll they'll just eventually, yeah. yeah, they'll they'll capitulate. I'll just capitulate. Oh my gosh, you're right. I I've read that verse in the Bible 18 times, but I never. It was that 19th time you read it to me that uh that was finally the one that convinced me I was wrong. Well, I I do appreciate that personal example, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it is a it is a very easy thing. It's a very natural thing, right? And especially when you arrive on this side of things, and um, you know, you're you're so joyous at having at having arrived here and so confident in what you believe. Uh, I was just reading some John Henry Newman last night where he talks about how, you know, he, he never had a single doubt and felt completely at peace once he became Catholic. And, and that resonates with me a lot. And it's hard for that not to spill over into this sort of attitude of triumphalism um, or overzealousness in the way that we talked about. So I appreciate that, uh, that personal example. Um, I could try to share personal examples, um, but it would, it would, it would take too long and <laughs> we, would, we would go on for too long. But, I, but I do think, um, you know, now I've just, I've arrived at this point where I, uh, first of all, I'm conscious of it. I think that's the first thing, right. Being conscious of it and being able to sort of check yourself and, and pray through something, um, uh, uh, you know, asking for the charity towards the other person before you engage with them. And that, and that does go a long way, um, and can, can do a lot. I entirely agree. And, uh, a book, a recent book that was uh, published, um, by Art, he's a right, uh, professor, I forget which Catholic university in Texas, University of St. Thomas Houston, I believe, Ari Hauser. Um, the book is Logic as a Liberal Art. And I thought this one particular thing he said in the book, I, I thought was so valuable, at, and I think it relates to ecumenical dialogue. He says, 
Uh, if our interlocutor neglects to include all premises because some are implied or considered so obvious, it would make interpretation of the argument tedious. And so he then argues that it's respectful and charitable for us to even fill in excluded premises before we evaluate other people's arguments. So the idea here is we're trying our best to fully build out our opponent's arguments before we start trying to engage with them and potentially trash them, right? Um, that is such a, a beautiful idea for, again, any dialogue, whether it's religious or not, because um, we, we want our opponents to offer the best possible arguments they have. We don't want them to bring the weak tea, <laughs> you know, like, cause if they bring the weak stuff and, and we destroy that, what have we really accomplished? Not much of anything. Right. So like I want my Protestant brother or sister or, you know, someone I disagree with politically to bring their very best. And if they're having trouble do that, well, is there any way I can help them <laughs> to, to do that? It's a great point. Um, I mean, it reminds me of St. Thomas, you know, the Thomistic principle of engaging your opponent's best form of the argument, um, but also of making it for them if they can't, right? Yes. So yeah, fill it out for them so that you can engage engage the best form of the argument and together you can find truth, right? Because I think a lot, of, a lot of what we should think about is argumentation really should be about seeking the truth in love together, right? And, uh, and, you know, you can't control whether or not your interlocutor sees it that way, but you can see it that way. Um, and, and I think you'll be better served, better served by doing that. We've got a couple, a couple big picture ideas here, uh, about some practical tips for you on how you can improve your own witness and your own ecumenical dialogue. And then we've got like five kind of tactical tips as we're calling them. So the first two big ones above all prayer in the sacramental life, we've talked already about how important, um, you know, subordinating uh, all other impulses to the love of Jesus Christ is, and you're going to be able to do that um, only through prayer and the sacramental life, participating in the sacrament. So, um, so do those things if you're going to have, and if you want to have serious conversations with Protestants uh, along these grounds, you need to make sure that you are grounded in your own prayer and sacramental life. The second is the the Saint Francis principle from his his prayer, the prayer of Saint Francis. Um, he said, you know, grant Lord that I may not seek. So that, that I may not so much seek to be understood as to understand. That's another good overarching principle for your engagement with other people. Um, try to understand where they're coming coming from so that you can evaluate their paradigm. Um, don't worry so much about being understood. Now, I, I don't mean to say that you shouldn't focus on communicating clearly and all of those things. But what I'm saying is you can't focus, you can't control how someone will understand you. You can do everything in your power to be clear and to sort of give them the necessary preconditions to understand you. But your primary goal should be be to understand them and, and to listen to them so that you can better communicate to them and and love them. And then we've got some tactical tips here. Um, number one is pray for your non-Catholic friends. That's very important. And if you are grounded in the prayer and sacramental life, you'll have lots of, of time and opportunities to pray for them. So do that. Don't discount the power of the Holy Spirit working in their life. So, you know, pray to the Holy Spirit. Uh, ask the Holy Spirit to, to guide these people and you um, towards truth. Um, another one is never be afraid to be seen as losing an argument. Um, a lot of times I think, you know, people who are arguing over these things can sort of dig themselves into holes because they say one thing that's slightly wrong, even though they don't, they don't mean it to be. And then it's sort of, you know, their interlocutor starts unwrapping that one singularly wrong thing. And then you have to backtrack and eventually you sort of just lose the argument. So don't be afraid about losing the argument. Um, it's okay. If you lose an argument, you're not omniscient. Uh, you don't have all the answers, but along those lines, don't be afraid to say, Good point. I don't know the answer. I'm confident there is one, but I'm going to get back to you. And then go talk to a pastor or a knowledgeable friend or go read some books that will help you engage with that question more. I mean, I promise you, your friends are going to come up with no no single question that the church has not already encountered hundreds of times and probably tens of thousands or millions of times. So the, the answer to those questions exist. They're out there, even if they're not in your brain. And it's okay if they're not in your brain. It's an opportunity for you to learn and engage more with your faith. So rather than just being afraid about losing an argument and needing to always have the last word or say something in response, don't be afraid to say, good question. I don't know. Let me get back to you. Um, and that, that I think is the most loving way of engaging with, with those types of questions anyway. We've got three more, Casey. Do you want to read off these? Sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's also good not to be afraid to just politely and lovingly end a conversation that's going nowhere. And there are plenty of times when we're engaged in conversations that have reached their end for any number of reasons, whether it's because emotions are running high or you're just kind of going over the same ground over and over again, and you're just not making any progress. Um, so best to come back and uh, engage at a later time. And actually Brian Cross, uh, who I mentioned earlier, my friend who uh, from called a communion, he is, has been very effective at doing that where, 
you know, it just seems that they start going in circles and he'll just say, you know what, let's take a break. Let's both commit to pray for six months. And then if you want to come back and we'll start this up again. Um, and I thought that was a great approach. Yeah, it's, it's super important. And it's, it's hard. I mean, my personality is I always want to win, right? And so I right. just want to keep going and going. But eventually you do. Um, and I think this feeds into your next, the next one. But uh, especially in cyberspace, you get into these, these you know, circular repetitive things that are just going nowhere. So you have to be able to just disengage and, and love the other person that way. Yeah, right. Yeah. So the next one we have is to just avoid internet comment discussions, which I, I've been party to plenty of them. But actually, I think, especially as I get older, I'm 36, um, wife and three kids, uh, the, like, <laughs> the internet is a terrible place to waste a lot of time and energy. Um, and, uh, and especially with people you don't even know. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I, I definitely resonate with this, even though I think that there are times and places, if, especially if it's a forum that, um, ha- maintains a high, um, degree of, uh, charity and respectfulness, then it can be done. But most places on the internet don't fill into, fall into that category, unfortunately. Right. Um, and then lastly, be upfront about where you've erred and wronged your interlocutors. So, yeah, I, I, it's, uh, I mean, this goes to what it means to be a saint, right? To be, to be saintly in the way we communicate with other people. Um, if, if we commit any of these fallacies and Zach, you mentioned at the beginning that you have fallen into this. I mean, the reason why I've even thought about proposing this is because I've committed all of these and had them, had them, I had to have them pointed out to me. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's incredibly important for us to be, to be humble and honest about, uh, about the errors that we make. Yeah. Um, one one it, example of this, I want to commend a guy named Matthew Schmitz, who's an editor for first things. He had a Twitter thread the other day where he just, I think it was the very end of the year. So he was taking the opportunity for the end of the 2019 calendar year to say, Hey, I'm sorry for people that I've wronged on Twitter. Here's a list. And, and no kidding. He went, it was kind of a mea culpa. He went and, and had a, uh, you know, tweet by tweet list. Like, here's what I tweeted. Then I deleted it. I'm sorry for the person at whom I was directing my anger. It was unjustified, et cetera. You know, here's, here's another one. I'm sorry for doing this. I've apologized to this person. I didn't mean that, et cetera. And uh, it was a very humbling exercise for him. I don't doubt, but, but you know, how, how, um, how loving was that to be able to do, to be able to um, expose himself and humble himself in front of the entire internet and say, I have wronged these people, you know, please forgive me. Um, and yeah. so, so I think it's a good, it's a good exercise. I mean, if you have to be on Twitter, I guess that's the way to do it. Right. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. If you have to be, I mean, good grief. I'm glad I, I'm, I'm not in a, I, I'm very grateful that I have all of that time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> How much time my friends waste on there. Oh, I, so um, I have a Twitter account, but, uh, if you go to my profile, it says this is a sports only account because I'm a big sports fan and I use it to follow all the beat reporters and, and, you know, all, all the sports networks and stuff like that. But I'm, I have zero interest in getting in any fights over anything that, uh, is actually high stakes, you know, so I'll, um, I'll, I'll follow the sports stuff, but that's it. It's a sports only account. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think that is probably a better way to go. And one thing I just wanted to, uh, hammer in on, um, with the, the first two things that you said about prayer in the sacramental life and, um, you know, focusing on, um, you know, understanding rather than being understood. It reminds me of one, a particular woman that I was interacting with through called to communion. She was an older woman, widowed, um, also living in Virginia and we were communicating a lot via email and, and she was thinking about coming into the church. She was also from a Presbyterian background. We went back and forth for months and, um, and I, I forget what the exact doctrinal issue we were debating, but, um, I, you know, laid out this really long detailed argument, everything I had thought about when I had decided to convert on this particular topic. And then I just threw in a link. I'm not going to say the name, but, but, you know, to another, a, a more popular Catholic apologist who I thought the way he wrote it and the kind of things he, he had discussed were very pedestrian and like kind of confusing and like, um, not, not very helpful, but I just kind of threw it in as like, and maybe you'll find this useful too. And she basically, <laughs> her response was, uh, you know, everything you wrote, I don't understand any of it. Like just a whole bunch of like intellectual gobbledygook, but thanks so much for the link. It was really helpful. It, uh, it persuaded me now, now I'm, I'm persuaded. And I, <laughs> nice. I think, I think, I think that's a good example of how like we think, our arguments are so important at persuading people to, you know, change their opinions on things. I think oftentimes it's more, it's more about the work of the Holy spirit and just the work of charity, you know, over lots of conversations, lots of months and years and, uh, and just being invested in people, right. As Christ was. I think that's well said. And I think it's a great, great spot to end this. So Casey, thanks so much for joining us again, on another episode of Creedal Catholic, uh, to my listeners. If you want to follow Casey's work, caseychalk.com. Do I have that right, Casey? That's right. Okay. And, uh, send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C at creedalcatholic.com. 
If I missed anything, if you want to add anything to our list here, I'd be happy to uh, take your feedback. If you have anything for Casey and you want to get in touch, you can just send me a note and I'll pass it along to Casey. And uh, Casey, hopefully we'll have you back on soon for another topic. Thanks so much. It was a real pleasure. Really appreciate it, Zach. All right. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. Until next time, God bless. Mm-hmm.